Welcome to Software Architecture Radio, where we discuss the latest in software architecture patterns and practices with the hands-on practitioners creating them. You can find us on the web at softwarearchitecturerad.io. I'm your host, Matt Stein. This episode of Software Architecture Radio is sponsored by Pivotal. How do you learn new things? You listen to podcasts like this and pick a few key events to attend. At this year's Spring One platform, learn all about the latest technology and patterns for modern systems, Spring Boot, Spring Cloud, Cloud Foundry, and so much more. Go to springoneplatform.io to sign up for this December event. So my guest today is Neil Ford. Neil is director, software architect, and meme wrangler at ThoughtWorks. He is an internationally recognized expert on software development and delivery, especially in the intersection of agile engineering techniques and software architecture. He's authored magazine articles, seven books and counting, dozens of video presentations, and spoken at hundreds of developer conferences worldwide. His topics include software architecture, continuous delivery, functional programming, cutting-edge software innovations, and also a business-focused book and video on improving technical presentations, which I happen to have read and use as my uh, presentation Bible quite often. But today we're going to talk about evolutionary architecture, and it's a topic that Neil has been writing and speaking about quite a bit lately. But before we get into that, Neil, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and kind of how you got to be you at this point in your career? Okay. Thanks, Matt. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, let's see. How did I get to be here in my career? Um, mostly by accident. I was told by a college professor at some point uh, that uh, this was in the early 90s that it seemed like I had good, great promise, but I really should dedicate more of my time to learning mainframe assembly language because that's where the real future in computer programming was as a career. So fortunately, I did, discarded his advice entirely and <laughs> stayed in the PC world and ended up kind of stumbling into a, uh, a company that did Clipper development. And nobody listening to this probably knows what Clipper is. And the few who are are now pumping their fists going, oh, yeah, Clipper, I can't believe it. <laughs> which was uh, this ancient uh, technology that was object-based, which was quite cutting edge in 1993. And you could make it completely object-oriented with this library called Classy, uh, which would add full uh, inheritance and polymorphism. And I was just graduating university with a computer science degree. And when I interviewed with this company, he was asking me about object-oriented programming, and I knew all about it because I had already been playing around with it in Object Pascal and been playing with the computer science. So uh, that pretty much got me the job there, uh, doing Clipper applications. And one of the weird side effects of that company is that we did application development, but we also did training classes in Clipper. And so at some point I started teaching training classes. And of course that led to the inevitable, well, you should speak at a conference about Clipper. And actually I didn't do much of that because by the time I graduated to conferences, it was D-based for Windows. And it was at a conference where we were talking about D-Base for Windows that I saw Delphi, or Delphi to all the people who are outside the U.S., which was quite a remarkable little piece of technology at the time, because what people don't realize about what was going on at that time was there was a huge transition going on from all the DOS-based stuff to Windows-based stuff. And Clipper had this big piece of vaporware offering called Visual Objects that was going to be this magic object-oriented environment that built Windows applications and native speed and yada, 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 and it was complete vaporware. But then 
we saw Delphi, which is based on Pascal, and it's like, well, that's actually the, the promise. And so that was the big rocky transition from one fundamental platform, DOS, into the Windows world. And that was my first book, was actually uh, a, a Delphi book. And then from there, gradually started speaking at more and more Delphi conferences, uh, which was a Borland company. And, of course, they had got into the Java IDE business. And so I started expanding my reach into more of the Java space because by that time I was the CTO of this company I had joined out of the university uh, and spoke more and more conferences there. And then uh, gradually went to ThoughtWorks uh, a little over 11 years ago and have continued doing basically the same stuff I've been doing my whole career, which is writing software and speaking at conferences and uh, writing books about stuff. Cool. I remember those uh, old Borland conferences. I went to one of the very last ones that was of any noticeable size. Maybe it was 2005-ish. Yeah, there was Delphi everywhere. I had really no idea what it was or how to deal with it because, you know, I started my programming career around, well, uh, formally around, uh, I guess, 1997, 98, and... uh, it was all Java all the time by then, um, but Borland still had a huge investment in, you know, Delphi and all the tooling that they'd built around that, and all the uh, widget libraries and so forth that you could pull in. And so, uh, I'm walking around saying, "I came here to learn about Java stuff, and half this conference is about Delphi. What am I going to do? Yeah, what is this thing that they keep talking <laughs> about?" Well, it was actually a remarkable tool because in, the guy who created Delphi was Anders Heilsberg, who's well known now as the, the creator of C Sharp and all that stuff at Microsoft because he started out his career at Borland. And at one point, uh, they decided to build this this tool, Delphi, as this development environment written in itself because it was all native code, written in Object Pascal. And so they actually got finished a lot earlier than they thought, and they had this marketing campaign and everything going. And so they just spent that time putting all this crazy spit and polish on Delphi. So it was the most rock-solid 1.0 product you've ever seen in your life. And that was a time when a lot of companies were making transition to Windows. And let's just say that transition was not pleasant for a lot of companies. (laughs) It released a lot of very buggy software. So it was kind of a revelation and really showed off this idea of a component marketplace, which had already been kind of created by uh, VBX controls and then later ActiveX controls, but they created their own little weird ecosystem. And here's the real shocker for you. There's still in Germany every year a Delphi conference that has an exhibitor hall that has people still selling Delphi components as of like a couple of years ago. So uh, that's one of those little ponds in the software development world that because people built useful stuff in it, it never goes away. Yeah. You may have been right on the cusp. Did you ever play around with a bulletin board systems, BBSs, uh, back when you were a youngster with a modem and Funny that you should bring that up because this came up in conversation um, this week. Um, I was I was sitting with uh, the Spring Cloud Services team in Cambridge, which was the team that I rolled off of a few months ago, and uh, we were talking about stuff that we were doing when we were much younger. And yeah, I I, I somehow came around to BBSs, and I actually have still somewhere in a box a newspaper clipping from 1987 where I was interviewed as one of the first users of the first bulletin board system in the town that I grew up in. <laughs> so yeah, not only did I play with them, you know, my dream and at this point I'm uh I don't know. Uh let's see 87. So I'm I'm 9 10 years old 
in there, and I was convinced that I needed to start my own bulletin board system, which at the time, the thing that you had to acquire was a phone line that was dedicated for that thing to even work. That's right. And um, I, I just couldn't convince my parents of the... Uh, of the real pressing need that I had to get a second phone line. Cause that was expensive business. I mean, we all have like, I think we pay for like six different phones these days with, with iPhones and, and devices and so forth. But back then you're going to get a second phone line. That was, that was rich people talk. Cra- crazy <laughs> extravagance to have a second phone line. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I saw on Twitter the other day, statements that you could say that someone from a modern generation had no idea about or advice from a previous generation. One of them was, when given the choice of X modem, XY modem, or Z modem, always choose Z modem. <laughs> but so back to this BBS thing, uh, I remember one of the BBSs I used to go to as a programmer BBS, and it uh, had a sign-off message because it was popular to put a, like a sign-off page yeah. on your BBS, and it was... Um, you may be able to see forever, but COBOL still prints your paycheck. <laughs> and I think that's still true even today. That And that's the, the still true of the Delphi world, that you build useful stuff in software, and it just never goes away. It figures out ways to stick around. So I was talking about Clipper stuff in 2000. So we built a bunch of Clipper applications in the early 90s. Uh, well, in 1999, we got a couple of calls from people about, is my Clipper application going to be Y2K compliant? Because even though most of the world had already moved on to Windows by that time, I mean, Windows 2000 was a big thing at that time. There was still a lot yeah. of people running those DOS applications in Clipper and needed to know if it was a Y2K compliant. And it turns out it kind of accidentally was <laughs> to no intention of the creators of Clipper. So there's no way they thought any Clipper applications to be running in 2000. They created in 1987. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, on the same theme of, you know, communicating with, we were talking about different generations before we started recording and uh, kind of the same thing applies here. I, I did a talk last year on the, on the no fluff tour, um, where I was kind of revisiting a bunch of stuff from the Pragmatic Programmer. Mm-hmm. I read back through the book. Um, this was probably, I don't know, a good at least decade or more since I had read through the book with any kind of care. I'd probably flicked open to a page or two to read something. What was it they said? Exactly how did they say it? But I read through the thing cover to cover. And the number of times that they bring up you know, the Y2K bug issue as a case study of here's how we're going to illustrate this particular software principle. And I'm thinking, anybody that's getting into programming right now that's picking this book up, you know, was probably under 10 years old when we crossed that boundary. And they have no idea what they're talking about. That's right. (laughs) They don't don't remember that. I knew people who were stockpiling water and medical supplies uh, (laughs) and going to a firing range and some crazy stuff like that. Not many. I worked in a software company, and at least one of my coworkers was actively stockpiling food and water because he was convinced that 2000 was going to bring Armageddon because all this software has been designed with two-digit dates. And this actually surprises me. So one of the things that enduringly surprises me about software is that it sort of works. Now think about how complicated an operating system is, and that it kind of breaks is amazing to me because it seems like it should just all collapse into one of your favorite expressions, a dumpster fire, all the time. But that it has partial failure modes fascinates me. That software is so complex that it can sort of work, but not sort of work. And not just, you know, uh, get the equivalent of a blue screen of death constantly when, oh, one thing's out of place. Okay, give up. Yep. Why don't we, why don't we segue into, uh, into talking about architecture? 
Okay. Since this is an architecture podcast, although there's a sense in which we've been talking about architecture the whole time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you've been really spending a lot of your time and effort thinking and, and talking and writing about this idea of, of evolutionary architecture. And, you know, I read through a couple of the blog posts that are out there. I watched one of your webinars. I listened to another podcast to kind of try to get a sense of, and, and I've got some different directions that we might go to talk about it, but um, there was a blog post that came out you know, pretty recently that you, you co-wrote with uh, Rebecca Parsons um, about microservices and evolutionary architecture, which uh, came up in the other podcast um, that I listened to as well. You made this statement that, you know, common wisdom in software once held that architectural elements are difficult to change later, and evolutionary architecture basically is saying, you know, we're going to challenge that fundamental notion on day one and say that, you know, we want to create architecture that makes things easy to change um, more so than, okay, architecture stuff that's difficult to change. We say, oh, we, we, we don't want things like that yep. in, in our architecture, which sounds like, you know, for the people who are listening, um, you're trying to turn our jobs on their head a little bit. Um, is, is that true? And if that is, is that how, how does that work? Not at all, but you can state our goals for the book in a, a, a fairly simple way. We want to make evolvability a first-class ability in software architecture. So this is one of the things that distinguishes the job of a software architect from someone who writes code or a designer or someone like that is you care about the trade-offs and all these non-functional requirements, all these illities that we always talk about in software architecture. And there's a list on Wikipedia, actually, of list of system quality attributes. If you do a Wikipedia search for that, that has a list of all the illities you can think of. And there's like a 100 things in that list. So you could never build an architecture that accommodates every one of those illities. So you have to think about, okay, I'm choosing a particular architectural pattern because it supports these kind of non-functional characteristics or illities that I want moving forward. So we want to add evolvability as one of those things. But here's one of the things that we kind of figured out is that evolvability is a meta-characteristic of an architecture because evolvability affects scalability and performance and auditability and all those other things because what evolvability suggests is, okay, I want to be able to make changes to my architecture but not break all the reasons I chose this architecture in the first place, all those illities. So you don't want to choose a layered architecture and then start letting people violate your layers all the time because, well, the persistent the presentation layer really needs performance, so I'm going to let them bypass all the layers and go straight to the database. As an architect, you know that's a terrible idea because now you can't make changes to any piece of your architecture without affecting every other piece. And so adding evolvability really talks about how do I affect all these other illities and build protections around those if we're trying to make an architecture where you can make changes relatively easily. And we use microservices as an exemplar for this, but not the only one, because it very interestingly allows you, because everything is so decoupled around domains, you can make changes to one domain and not worry about breaking the others because there's no coupling there, or no inappropriate coupling. We're very careful in the book to distinguish between what we call appropriate kinds of coupling in architecture and inappropriate kinds of coupling in architecture. And so evolvability, we want we want to make that one of the abilities that that we're thinking about. Why? What 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 is driving us to say that you know the way that we used to think about architecture is probably 
um, not ideal in the climate that we're living in. So let's talk about the let's talk about the climate we're living in. So here's a thought experiment for you. Take a computer, it be a physical computer like a laptop or something, install an operating system on it and a bunch of uh, software like an application server and some development libraries and that kind of stuff. And I take that computer and lock it in a closet for a year. Okay. Take the computer out of the closet, plug it back into electricity, and plug it back into the internet. And what's the first thing that computer is going to want to do when it starts up? Probably want to apply a long list of patches. 57 updates and patches because even though you didn't change a single byte on that computer, the entire ocean of the software development ecosystem kept moving along. This is what we're referring to as the dynamic equilibrium of the software development ecosystem in our book because it's ever-changing, and it never stops, and it changes in ways that you never thought of before. So a great example of this is Docker. When it hit our ecosystem, nobody expected something like containerization and Docker to come along. And in fact, if you're an enterprise architect and two years ago made a five-year plan about resource allocation and other stuff like that and didn't include things like Docker and cloud – you can now take that five-year plan and wad it up and throw it away because it becomes completely irrelevant because the entire world you're trying to plan against is in constant shift and motion and often changes in ways you can never anticipate. So we believe that predictability is shot in software. So what's the next best thing to predictability? It's the ability to evolve with those changes so that when those changes come along, they don't break everything that you've done. You have to start over from scratch every time. But that's why we think it's important to get better at building evolvability in the architectures because we keep trying to build these kind of static, brittle structures and then hope they last until we have to build another static, brittle structure. Uh, we need to get a lot better at building uh, joints that bend between things and allow us to evolve sure. a lot better. And in fact, here's an interesting, so I've talked a lot about this in other podcasts, so here's something I haven't talked about on other podcasts. And so one of the side effects, and you know this as well, of writing a book is you get really immersed in a a topic and including a lot of ancillary stuff that goes around that topic. And so here's some stuff I'm thinking about putting in the Evolutionary Architecture book, which is essentially done, uh, but now I'm trying to decide if I want to put this stuff in there because we've debated how far down the rabbit hole of this evolutionary biology metaphor we want to go. So, for example, you could go completely bananas with this evolutionary metaphor and say, okay, I'm going to build an architecture that randomly changes one of its bits and then redeploys itself and see if the new one is better. And, you know, after a million years, you might have an unbelievably cool architecture that you never would have come up with. Problem is we don't have a million years to wait. So we can't let natural selection work right. in the way that it does in normal biology. But one of the things that – so I just read this really fascinating book called Arrival of the Fittest – which is basically what has changed in biology in the last 20 years or so as computational science and biology have merged and computation has become a really important part of uh, evolutionary biology. And so, and, and of course, everything I read relates to architecture. And I've been reading a lot of evolutionary biology stuff because we're doing this evolutionary architecture book. So here's the, the part that I was getting around to very, very circuitously, as it turns out. So when you talk about evolutionary biology, you talk about the genotype versus the phenotype. Mm -hmm. So the genotype is what your genes express, so it's all the possibilities, and the phenotype is how those get expressed into an actual living creature. And so part of that is gene regulation that turns things on and off, etc. So one of the things that we write about in the evolutionary architecture book is about migrating from one architectural style to another one. 
But the problem that you encounter, and you've encountered this, I know, numerous times in your career, that you are told that an architecture has a particular genotype, but it really has a completely different phenotype. Mm. In other words, we designed a layered architecture here, but then a couple of years ago, for performance reasons, we let the reporting guys bypass layers and go directly to the database. And so the phenotype is now a big ball of mud, even though the genotype is a layered architecture. Yeah. So I'm trying to decide how far down that comparison route I want to go because this is uh, I mean, we have a lot of stuff in there about migrating from you know monoliths into more service based architectures. But one of the tricky things about doing that migration from a real world standpoint is that people tell you, oh yes, we have a well designed layered architecture, but how often is it really a well designed layered architecture? Yeah. It's kind of a sort of a layerish big ball of mud in many cases. And, of course, in the real world, you have to figure out how to migrate those things as well. Right, which is, you know, a lot of what I'm being asked to help do all the time now is, okay, this is, I, I love what you're saying. I know that's where I want to go. This is where I am. How in the world am I going to get there? A little known fact about my background is that I had to pick something to uh, do a research uh, summer experience around my junior year at university um, as part of this honors college thing that I was in. And um, I was I was talking to one of my favorite CS professors saying, you know, what, what should I do? I don't know. I mean, she was into AI stuff. I thought maybe I could do some AI stuff. And she's like, have you heard of bioinformatics? And I, I said, no, what's that? And she's like, well, basically it's merging, you know, computer science and biology in, in interesting ways uh, to solve problems. I'm like, and, and I happen to know these people that do that at St. Jude Hospital in Memphis. Mm. And, and so I said, okay, that, that sounds interesting. She's like, I'll, I'll see if they have like any internship positions or something. I ended up doing an internship there. Got fascinated with that, was doing what now hipsters call data science, but it was back then it was data mining. Yep. And um, somehow managed to find my way into a conference where we were uh, we were at Duke University, and it was a competition where they had this uh, data set. Uh, it was a bunch of uh, gene expression data, and people basically analyzed it using different techniques and presented their technique. And this one uh, team, I believe it was from Vanderbilt, got up there and said, well, we're going to use genetic algorithms to study the gene expression data. And I said, I'd never heard of genetic algorithms before. I got interested in that. I ended up doing a thesis in genetic algorithms, ended up publishing a paper as a graduate on regulation of gene expression, actually detecting these elements that they existed in kind of like the non-coding, what, you know, what we used to call junk DNA. We didn't yep. know what it was there for, but really there's all this stuff upstream of, of a gene that um, will uh, basically signal as to when I want to switch things on and off. Mm-hmm. And if you can find those things, then you can probably start to figure out how these pathways work and in some cases tweak the regulation of the pathway so you can switch things off that cause cancer is kind of where the research was going. And I thought, well, maybe I can use genetic algorithms to evolve detectors for those things. Mm-hmm. So so that that was what I was doing uh, as an academic in the very early 2000s before I got sucked into building enterprise software. <laughs> so, the, And this podcast is definitely in the danger of veering into a biology podcast now, but you would really like this book, Arrival of the Fittest, because it turns out that not only is that junk DNA good for regulation, but what this book is really about is all the data science they've done on 
that junk DNA is there because if you're going to evolve from one thing to another, so for example, if you need to make this protein and use a different energy source, you have to have some intermediate steps along the way, and that, that turns out that junk DNA helps you build basically pathways through the possible ways that you can do, you know, metabolism or you can do protein synthesis or some of that kind of stuff. So it's it's a deeper understanding using a bunch of uh, bioinformatics sure. about what all that junk DNA is there for. So it's, it's fascinating. I mean, we could stuff. veer into a biology podcast all, all, all we wanted. I, I end up getting to biology metaphors in every talk that I give about architecture these days anyway because – and I, and I think this is, you know, a, a good way to bring the conversation back around. A lot of the architectures that I think we're trying to build now, they have more in common with biological systems than they do software technology systems in terms of the characteristics that we're looking for. Like our body is constantly replacing the cells that exist. I'm, I'm still me, but I have completely different cells today than I did a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a sense in which <clears throat> we want the same things from a software system. We, 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 we're not producing something, dumping it on a CD and shipping it to you and you install it into a machine. Very often, you know, we're building these things as a service and the consumers of these, you know, usually they're coming through an app or something like that. They're expecting that app to continue to evolve and get better, which means that the stuff on the back end of that needs to continue to evolve and get better. And you can't say, oh, we're going to take the service offline, uh, you know, for, for a day so that we can update the code. Um, because then everybody would basically, oh, this thing's crap. I'm not going to use it. And they all delete it from their phone. So you got to be able to evolve that functionality and add to it and change it and improve it without actually ever turning it off, which, you know, kind of is the way we work, too. And, that, and we make an important distinction in the book. Rebecca is the first one who really highlighted this distinction for us, and we write about it, between adaptable systems versus evolvable systems. Because you could take an existing architecture and adapt it to do other stuff, or you can evolve it. And the, the real difference there is that adaptable means that you're trying to retrofit it to do something in, in addition to what it normally does, whereas evolvable means you're making a fundamental change to what's, what it does, the underlying uh, mechanisms for how it works. And the real difference boils down to adaptability increases technical debt, whereas evolvability should not. So that's exactly what you're talking about. You can take an existing architecture and kind of patch it for every new change that comes along, and kind of patch it and kind of patch it and kind of patch it. And before long, you end up with a patchy architecture, which is very much unlike the Apache server, <laughs> uh, which would be very hard to maintain increasingly as you increase technical debt and increase more and more pathways versus making a fundamental change to it as you go along, which is this idea of an evolvable architecture. Got it. And since you've got all this background in biology, then you also really grok our use of this idea of a fitness function Yes. in evolutionary architecture as a way of assessing. And really our goal there is to take all these non-functional requirements. So how many projects have you been on where you see architects that are on a regular basis, in a, oh, let's say even a continuous kind of way, testing out all these non-functional requirements that they define as part of their architecture? Some of them do, but they're almost always on an ad hoc basis or you know, every once in a while we run the scalability test because it's hard to set up or you know, performance testing is, is difficult. Uh, what we're trying to do is get everybody to think about those really as a species of fitness function. Because that's really what that is. What a fitness function in evolutionary architecture is, 
I've chosen this architectural pattern for a reason, and I want that reason to be preserved in time. And so building a fitness function around scalability or performance or auditability or something like that means that you can make changes to the architecture and still preserve those things that you have identified up front and on an ongoing basis as the really important things you need to protect in the architecture. Yeah, so so pushing on that topic a little bit, um, you think about you know fitness functions in in reality. You know, what is the fitness function for real life on Earth? Right, that okay, we have um, an evolved characteristic that makes it more likely that I am going to produce offspring, and if that is not a good characteristic that allows me to survive and and, and make that happen you know, then we die off, right? We, we disappear. Coming back into architecture, you know, I've got a fitness function that um, is geared towards preserving the characteristics that we want. Is there an analogy to, um, okay, you, you blew it, you didn't meet the criteria of the fitness function, so you're going to die off um, as an architectural element? There is actually an exact analogy for this. So we talk about a bunch of different kinds of fitness functions, and the most complex by far are ones that we call holistic continual fitness functions, which are ones that affect many parts of your system, and they run all the time. And the perfect example of this, uh, they don't call it a fitness function, but it really is, and that's part of what we're doing is trying to wrap this nomenclature around several things that seem like disparate parts but really are part of the same thing. It's the uh, Chaos Monkey from Netflix. Yeah, that's where I thought you were going. So think about, yeah, resiliency is really what they're testing there. But Chaos Monkey is not something that they run at 2 o'clock on Tuesday afternoon. The Chaos Monkey lives in their infrastructure. So every developer, when they make services at Netflix, when they put it live, they know the Chaos Monkey is going to attack it. And one of the functions of the Chaos Monkey, uh, I believe it's called the Doctor Monkey, who goes and checks to make sure that the rest endpoints are configured correctly. And if it's not, it kicks it out of the architecture. Mm. So a developer who tries to deploy something that is genetically flawed, in your analogy, there is a mechanism that goes and harvests that thing and gets rid of it out of the architecture. Because if resiliency, so that's a, a perfect example, for the Netflix engineers, resiliency was a really important characteristic of their architecture that they did not want to give up. So how do you ensure that you have resiliency? They test it continually. Everything they do is constantly under the barrage of this resiliency test, but it's a great fitness function because they're really good with resiliency. <laughs> Maybe the most resilient architecture we've seen on Earth so far. Sure. This episode of Software Architecture Radio is sponsored by ArtComp 2017, the premier North American software architecture conference. Are you interested in attending the Ultimate Architecture Conference in 2017? Join us for ArtConf coming December 11th to 14th in Clearwater, Florida. ArtConf features nine architecture tracks, 150-plus sessions, world-class speakers, and it's all held at a five-star beach resort. What could be better? Go to artconf.com for further details. You'll also get the chance to meet me there as I'll be teaching a cloud-native architecture patterns workshop on day one. I keep trying to relate, you know, what we're talking back to what I actually see, um, you know, people doing. And uh, there, there's there's very often this theme, even in I'm having conversations with about people who are wanting to move to microservices and they're wanting to move to cloud native, you know, which is kind of the, the flavor of uh, 
nomenclature I use when I'm talking about a lot of these same things, mm-hmm. I, I'm finding that there are literally eight different conversations going on right now where we have a different language to talk about the same fundamental concepts. Mm-hmm. But there's this fascination with we want to make sure that we get everything right. Like even even when we go to, okay, I want to build a list of things that I can hand to all the developers in the organization that says, okay, if you follow this list of 10 things, then you have a microservice. But if you can't right. check all 10 of the boxes, you don't have a microservice anymore. And it mm-hmm. feels like that, you know, we've, we've been attracted, you know, like the bug to the, the bug zapper lamp. You know, it's like, oh, cool, microservice architecture. And I go over there, and the first thing that I do is say, okay, how can we specify all of the things that we need to specify to ensure that we actually get that thing? And that feels like completely the wrong approach to, because it sounds like, okay, you're going to lock yourself into some snapshot point in time of what you think a microservice architecture should look like, but then you're never going to be able to actually evolve it because you're locked in now with all these criteria. But I think exactly what that is, is enterprise architects trying to take the 20-year-old enterprise architecture playbook and apply it to the current modern world, which doesn't work well. Because most of enterprise architecture playbook from 20 or 10 years ago was about command and control, cost savings, shared resources, because software was viewed as operational overhead. It's not strategic, so we want to keep the cost down because it's overhead. And so that was a large part of the function of enterprise architecture. But the problem with that approach is you end up making a lot of dumb decisions at the altar of, well, this will save us money. And what it does is save you money on software licenses, but greatly increases the complexity and the time it takes to build software because everything gets so complicated. So I think if you approach this correctly in that microservices is not something that you're supposed to specify, you know, the 12 expected platforms that you can build stuff in but rather make it be very organic and, dare I say, very evolutionary from a biology standpoint of saying, okay, I have this need right now, and we we always try to get back to what is the value of this? Because one of the dangers always in architecture is my one of my favorite memes that meta work is more interesting than work. Building a really elaborate microservice architecture with service discovery and, you know, six of the other eight named Corvus services is a great deal of fun. Uh, but it's not very much value to the company unless you're building that architecture to provide value to the company in terms of ease of being able to change things or A-B testing or hypothesis-driven development or something like that. You brought up that bug zapper. Uh, one of uh, A quote that I, I think this is from my productive um, programmer book, was uh, developers are drawn to complexity like moths to a flame mm. with often the same outcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's really the same meta work is more interesting than work quote because that's really what it is is people get lost in the ooh I get to play with all these shiny things without coming back around to okay why are we doing all these shiny things and maybe we should do something more mundane more valuable what we need to do well I think a lot of it boils down to the problem domain is something that is closer to our own experience as say, an engineer, mm-hmm. like, oh, I can understand all this complexity. I understand the requirements. I can go build a solution for that. But when you tell me, okay, you need to go learn this business domain and you need to understand the business problems that we're trying to solve, that's yeah. that's hard. Well, exactly, it's it's exactly that. So I was chatting <laughs> with an architect the other day uh, for this big company, and they're currently in the process of rewriting all their front-end-facing stuff 
from Angular 2 to React. And we asked them, what's the value in that? And they said, well, uh, React is, you know, just better. It's newer. And, you know, in, in five years, it's going to be easier to make modifications to this. But really, uh, the analogy that I gave to them was they're repainting the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. And the Golden Gate Bridge is so big that it takes them a year to repaint it. And every year they have to just start over again. So it's a perpetual job. It's a full-time job repainting Golden Gate Bridge. And what these guys have done in this big company has found their gold, their painting Golden Gate Bridge job. Because every two or three years, they're just going to gut the plumbing of whatever library is there and replace it with something else. Because that's way easier than going to talk to the business people to find out what they should be doing. Yeah. That's the messy thing nobody wants to do. We find this in so many companies that have really anemic or non-existent business analysis where they don't really know what they're supposed to be building. And so in the ad, in a vacuum, they'll just start playing with technology stuff. And it becomes very easy to get seduced by the technology stuff and forget that, you know, you're building a software for some purpose. You know, some, there's an ulterior motive for building this stuff. Well, this is an interesting point that kind of brings back to something that I almost asked maybe 20 minutes ago. Because we were talking about kind of the, the dynamic equilibrium and, and Docker showed up. And so it invalidated my uh, strategic architecture plan because I now need to think about how that affects what I'm going to do. But then we just got done talking about, oh, well, you know, React is here. You know, we, we're going to move from this to that. Clearly, there are times when, well, let's say, I have the ability to evolve my architecture. I've done a good job from that standpoint. Clearly, there are things that I want to react to and evolve into my architecture. And there, clearly, there are things that that's a really bad idea just because it showed up. We don't know if that's a good thing yet or not. And even if we do, you know, three years, it's a good thing for some people, but it's still not a good thing for us. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do we as architects, now that we have the ability to evolve the architecture, make the decisions about, well, what things are shiny and new, but we should not touch, and what things are actually going to give us some benefit. Well, this is always going to be one of the toughest parts of our job, and this is why we get paid more than just the rank-and-file developers do. But uh, there's some some guideposts here, because this gets back to something we talked about before. Taking all these non-functional requirements and capturing them all as fitness functions allows you to get an apples-to-apples comparison going between, which is actually more important, the ability to uh, evolve on top of our web stuff with React in a few years versus how long it's going to take to do that versus this business value that we're trying to deliver over here. So you really need ways to assess trade-offs. That's that's the nasty word that architects always end up having to talk about all the time, with trade-offs. And we really need ways to evaluate trade-offs because that's a, a classic architectural trade-off. Do I spend time gutting my current infrastructure to replace it with something else, or is there some more value somewhere else? We need better ways within a company to really assign value to something. And getting more equitable comparisons between things like Illities, I think, helps uh, toward that end. And in, even in their case, if they've built an architecture where not everything is coupled to everything else, they could take parts of the architecture and upgrade those to React when there's a good, compelling need to do that. That's part of this idea of building decoupled architectures, that you're not forced to lockstep, upgrade everything all at one time, that you can be a lot more selective about how to do that. One of the other metaphors we lean on in the evolution architecture book is from quantum physics. We talk about the quanta of change within an architecture. And so in a layered architecture, the quanta is quite large because it encompasses all the layers and all the data and all the dependencies, etc. 
in a microservices architecture, the quantum is quite small because we're trying to make these very small decoupled services from one another. And it turns out that uh, an architecture with a smaller quanta in general is easier to evolve than one that has a much larger one, particularly if it's uh, split along ways that you're not that interested in evolving along. For example, one of the, uh, the examples I bring up in, in my uh, talk is a lot of people have a layered architecture. And one of the beautiful things about a layered architecture is it allows you to swap out your persistence layer anytime that you want to. And then I pause and ask the crowd, how often do you swap out your entire persistence layer? And they go, well, never, because it's still way complicated. And, you know, it's, it's all there for a reason. So, okay, how, how often do you make changes to customer? Well, every day. But if you look at a layered architecture, customer is split out across all those layers, so it's not much better than a big ball of mud. And that's where microservices is better from a domain-centric standpoint, because that's where you're more likely to make changes in business applications is around domains. And that is going to include code and database schemas and all those things that go into that bounded context of customer. Uh, and if you can split those out into more isolated quantums, you're capturing the more common unit of change that happens on real-world projects. Okay, so this, this so this is interesting because you, you led me right to one of the places that I wanted to go, okay. um, which was, okay, we, we, we apply all this domain thinking and, um, you know, we'll, we'll take customer. You, you mentioned customer. I had customer in my notes. Yeah, that's always the, the canonical. That's the foo and bar of right. architects. Exactly, <laughs> customer. exactly. <laughs> customer orders and line items. <laughs> foo bar. You know, the question becomes... Well, okay. Who does own customer at that point? Because if you know, you could say, okay, well, I'm going to have a, a bounded context that just owns customer, but then almost every other bounded context that I'm working with probably needs to interact with something about customers at some point in time. So does that mean, okay, well, now I have to make a service call to the customer service every time I want to know something about customer? Not, that sounds like that could get expensive. Not necessarily, but that, and that's a very kind of service-oriented architecture way of thinking about things where services are entities. And that's not always the case in uh, domain-driven design. This is something that Martin talks about a lot, Martin Fowler, that uh, a bounded context really is not necessarily a one-to-one -one mapping between a particular entity. So you may have a customer processing kind of bounded context that does stuff with customers, but you may also have a shipping context that does stuff with customers. The real danger that I think architects have to constantly be on guard of is over-reusing stuff and trying to over-canonicalize stuff, Sure, trying to create canonical versions of things. And I think what microservices has taught us is that, you know what? There's a customer processing thing that deals with things around customer, you know, identity and that kind of stuff. And then shipping also needs some customer stuff, but we're not going to try to share the same service. They're both going to have their own concept of customer inside them. And if I need to hydrate something about customer from shipping, I can go and make that service call if I want to. But I'm not trying to put every single thing about customer in one quantum because Part of the problem is just a practicality one, which is where I think you're getting to. You can't do it. We tried it in service-oriented architecture to create the uber customer service that knows everything there is to know about customer. And forget about just the technical limitations of that. Try to get all the business people in the entire organization together and make them agree what customer means. And you can't because customer to the shipping department is a completely different thing than customer from the accounting department. Sure. Yeah. And they really are different things. And as architects and software developers, we try to over categorize the world and say, oh, well, they have the same name. They must be the same thing. 
in many cases they're not. But the counterbalance to that, that that I'm seeing people struggle with, they are different things. But then there is, in fact, a human being somewhere out there in the world that all of those different things kind of try to map back to. And very often, uh, myself as a customer, uh, I, I will not name the name. We named it before we started recording this this business that we both do business with, who is not particularly well known for their customer service being good. Um, you call one side of that company and you have a conversation with them about a problem that you're dealing with. And then you, and, and, and we'll say that's one bounded context. You get routed to another part of that company that's a different context that needs to deal with part of that problem. And all of the context that was built up on one side of that conversation is lost because those two pieces of the system, not only do they not integrate, they don't have a way to integrate. And so this is where, you know, you come back to when I'm working with the teams that are trying to solve problems, I like that. It's like, we see this as a problem. It's a big time customer service problem. But the only way we know how to solve it is to make sure that there's some place where we can sync all that stuff together so that that context floats around with you as you float across the business. But as soon as you do that, it feels like you're coupling everything back together. So there's this weird trade-off so one of, one of the distinctions we make in the book is about logical cohesion. So what you're talking about is a logical cohesion problem here, trying to keep that context alive for that entire you know conversation that you're having. And what's ironic about this is the company that we're talking about, I'm pretty sure is not microservices, but a mainframe that is mm-hmm. failing to keep all those things together. So what we're actually seeing here is a failure from a business standpoint keep all those things together because clearly the business, that's not a high value thing for them because they've never invested any effort into making that happen. At least apparently they haven't. And the exact same thing would be true within an architecture. If you really need that shared context and you'd need to invent, if there was a really business driver for that kind of shared, you know, build everything up together kind of thing, then that is going to be one of the architectural quantums you're going to have within your architecture. I think one of the things, the mistakes that people make is, Ooh, microservices, micro, therefore everything should be as small as it possibly can be. Uh, Martin, in the article that actually kicked off all the interest in microservices by naming the thing, is careful to make this distinction that microservices is a label, not a description. It's a label because they had to give it some name, and it's micro compared to service-oriented architecture, which is gargantuan. But it doesn't mean that every service has to be small. And, in fact, that's one of the things that we were talking about in the book about finding the appropriate level of granularity for these architectural quantum. And it may be that the the scenario you give, the quantum is enough to capture the context of this customer service call for the entire lifetime of the call. Mm -hmm. If that's something that's really important, then architecturally we'll figure out a way to model that, whether it's services, whether it's a bigger chunk in our architecture and not a, a bunch of teeny tiny services, but a fatter one to maintain all that context, or some sort of shared mechanism, if scalability is a problem, we might actually introduce something like a <gasps> enterprise service bus or something <laughs> to manage that shared context, but there's an architectural need for that, then we can find a way sure. to, uh, to make that happen. I mean, ultimately, you're trying to change your focus, and we've been having different versions of this conversation for a few years now. Stop thinking so much about the nouns. You know, there's, 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 there's an entity out there but in this case, it's really not so important that I know a bunch of stuff about customers. It's it's really that I need to know a bunch of stuff about a conversation that is taking exactly. place at, at a point in time. And that conversation spans a lot of different areas 
but it's not really about customer. It's about a process that's going on right now. And actually, that's exactly what eventually motivated Amazon to break up their architecture into the, the way that it is, because they tried for a long time to build a monolithic architecture and tried to build, you know, we'll build the most scalable database back end ever. And at some point they realized all that shared context was killing them. And so that's when they split everything out in these very small services and started trying to identify those scenes that you're talking about. Not really around nouns, but around business processes. Mm. And in fact, different business processes pass different kinds of entity information back and forth with one another, but it's all about that business process you're trying to capture, which goes exactly back to what we were talking about before. It's easy to go build Docker images and put stuff in them. Trying to figure out what's in those Docker images is hard. The business analysis part of software, and in particular, doing really good domain-driven design is quite difficult. A lot of companies struggle with that, is trying to figure out what is an appropriate business context here and what is the smallest level of granularity we should strive for in the architecture where we don't invent really hard problems for ourselves. So one of the guidelines I give people is as soon as you say the words, oh, we need to distribute a transaction here, that's a red flag that, oh, we've gone too far from a granularity standpoint. Right, right. Because transactions are, it's actually one of the easy signposts that we have as architects for things that belong together. Exactly. (laughs) If they're all wrapped in a big, fat transaction now, chances are really good from a business standpoint. They either belong together or there's an artificial sense they belong together. And now you're going to have to twist a bunch of people's arms to convince them that they don't actually belong together, which we also have to do sometimes. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I've had every single one of those conversations multiple times and a lot of it. And you, I think you were the first person I heard say this, that half the reason we have half the transactions we do is because we made it so blasted easy to create transactions that we did it without thinking. Yep. And then now people just think it's a natural part of the universe where almost nothing in the universe acts that it's way. Like, does this really have to happen in an atomic way with that? Well, well, no. Okay, well, you don't need a trans... What do you mean? <laughs> but that, that gets around to, I think, one of the, our failures as architects is to properly elucidate these trade-offs and what these trade-offs really are to business people. Because, I mean, transactions are a great example of a trade-off. You can wrap the entire universe in a transaction if you want, but you're going to hit a scalability number that uh, right. we're not going to be able to get past. And so you can't have both those things. And we really need a good way... And and probably one of the things we need to get better at as architects is identifying what the real value of those trade-offs are to business people so they can really make an informed decision about which direction should we be going. In a lot of places, uh, what happens is because there's no real good way to make that assessment, particularly in large organizations, architects just say, well, I'm just going to work on the fun stuff with your rip out Angular 2 and put React in and not not have to talk to all those messy business people because they keep making demands of me and, you know, I have to think about stuff and, that's not nearly as fun as, you know, right. <laughs> ripping out and replacing plumbing. So so uh, it, it's good that we've gotten back to trade-off because there was one last thing that I wanted to touch on that I thought about touching on much earlier, but uh, this is a, a nice natural place to tie off with that. You mentioned the, the Wikipedia page of, of all the illities, and we want to get evolvability onto that list. And um, you also mentioned that... It'd be great if I was the best architect in the world and I could get all the illities into one architecture and they would all be great. And we know that that's not possible. We have to make choices. Clearly, there are some illities that trade off against other illities. You can't raise the bar to 10 on, on both of those things at the same time. 
What types of trade-offs do we see where we match evolvability up against some of the other more traditional, well-known illities, and we say, I can't dial it all the way up to 10 on evolvability and that. Something's going to have to suffer. Well, certainly uh, the ones that really stress your architectures a lot, like scalability, is one of those tricky things. So we recently had an internal discussion at ThoughtWorks about event-driven architectures and, and came up with this useful scale that sometimes you choose an event-driven architecture, but sometimes it's chosen for you because <laughs> you have a certain level of scale that you have to achieve. The only way you can get there is asynchronous message queues. And that may not fit your problem domain very well, but it does fit that, that scalability illity that you have to be able to support from a business standpoint. Uh, a lot of that goes into, you know, choosing illities for, for good reasons. And some, some of them are business drivers and some of them are more kind of technical architecture kinds of things. And so again, this gets down to, you know, individual trade-offs for individual companies. You have to be able to decide what kinds of abilities do we want to be able to support going forward. Uh, so auditability is one that is super important to a lot of companies. They don't want to give up because they have legal requirements around, uh, you know, making changes or who made changes to code. Uh, one of the things that uh, we talk about are things like legal requirements. We know some companies that a, a lawyer has to vet changes to certain parts of the system and in those cases, we still want to automate as much as we can, but there's a manual stage in the deployment pipeline somewhere that says, okay, that lawyer's got to sit and look at that code. It's That's going to be a limit on how evolvable our architecture is because it's always got to pass through that manual you know, bottleneck, and so that's going to slow down the rate at which we can make evolutionary changes. So certainly some, like uh, uh, agility, is an agility that's super well suited for evolvability. Some of them are completely neutral, and then some... Uh, make it a lot more difficult. So scalability is tough because it's just hard to automatically test that and keep that kind of test running. But I think all of these things will eventually bend to this ability. Uh, one of the things, I think one of the benefits for getting these ideas out of the world, which we're going to try to do pretty soon, is to make people start thinking about things as fitness functions. You know, back a long time ago, people lamented the fact that, well, you know, you could never automate operations because there's no way you could, like, capture, you know, a machine image as source code. But then somebody said, oh, well, yeah, you can, you can do that, and now there's an explosion of tools to do that. Uh, I think once people start thinking about scalability as a fitness function, people will come up with ways to apply that fitness function in a deployment pipeline, come up with better tools to do this, uh, clever uh, workarounds to limitations. And so I think if we can make this something that people think about on a regular basis, then the things that are really hard to support now will become more easily supported in the future. Sure. Yeah. A, a good example of that. We're obviously doing business with a lot of very security conscious customers. And, you know, the way that we very often think about how to do security is, 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 is lock everything down, make everything hard to change. And that kind of flies in the face of this evolutionary concept. And so one of the things that we're spending a lot of kind of product development and, and engineering R&D time thinking about is, okay, how do we make it possible to do both, to where you can evolve the architecture, but at the same time, the security controls and constraints that we put in place kind of evolve with it and make it possible for us to say, yeah, okay, it was secure before, we've made this change, the security controls have evolved with it, and it's, it's secure at the same level. That's a really hard problem to solve, as it turns out. But it's one of those things that if you can get that right, then 
it makes it a lot more palatable for somebody to say, okay, yeah, I'll move in this direction of being more evolvable because I feel like that I can, I can demonstrate that I'm just as secure every step of the way as opposed to, oh, we spent six months going through a, a review process to make sure that the architecture is secure. Please don't change it. Well, I'm thinking, too, about the benefit of capturing all these kind of things as fitness functions. So now that you're security guys, you have fitness functions that check your security stuff. Uh, enterprise architects now have to start thinking about how can I express this as something that's testable. And so that really does create this apples-to-apples thing that what I was talking about before, where now they're all first-class citizens of things that we need to vet our architecture against as we make changes to them. And neither of them is necessarily more important than the others, and we can actually do some real trade-off analysis for the ones that we do. Some things are involvable, like security, where we don't want to let security slide, but you know there might be some others that there's a slider there where more effort here means less effort here, and we can be a lot more strategic about it. Cool. Well, that's about all the time we've got. How can folks who are listening kind of keep up with, you know, what you're doing in this space and, and learn more? Yep. Uh, so there is the evolutionaryarchitecture.com website, which we own, and we have our definition and uh, basically links to all the videos and articles and all that stuff that we've created so far. Uh, we're going to put a pre-see of the book up there very soon. We're in the uh, we're going through drafts of that right now, and the book is is very, very close to done. Uh, so what that site will become once the book is published is a place where we're going to have uh, more dynamic examples and stuff like that because we've realized there's a dynamic equilibrium problem with samples in a book, too, yeah. that uh, the world moves on and, and outdates those things. So well, the principles and ideas are going to be in the book and the concrete examples we're going to put on the evolutionaryarchitecture.com website. So people can uh, keep up there. Uh, we're uh, keeping to update that on a regular basis, and there'll be a bunch of stuff show up there uh, very soon. Excellent. That sounds great. Well, thanks for uh, for taking the time to uh, talk with us today. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. My guest today has been Neil Ford. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Architecture Radio. For more information, including other episodes, visit us at softwarearchitecturerad.io. Join the discussion by posting to an individual episode's comment thread or leave us feedback on iTunes. You can also message or mention us on Twitter at SWArchRadio. This episode was produced by Mandy Moore. You can find her on the internet practically everywhere at at the Ruby Rep. Also, if you haven't heard of her podcast, Greater Than Code, you should go check it out at www.greaterthancode.com because people matter. Until next time, this is Matt Stein for Software Architecture Radio. Software Architecture Radio.